Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is Brett, and you are tuned in to another episode. Uh, I hope you're staying safe wherever you are. Um, These are definitely unprecedented times, and I know that many of you are uh, feeling it right now. So I just want to say that we're all in this together. Um, I hear you. I feel you. And um, I just hope that you and your family are safe uh, wherever you are tuning in from. Uh, so, um, I don't really have any major announcements ahead of today's episode. Uh, suffice to say that I think that what we're going to start noticing as we get further into this pandemic and as we move out of it, I think that one of the key topics that we're going to keep coming back to is the topic of sustainability. And sustainability in a broader sense, uh, looking at things like economic sustainability, uh, food security, uh, sustainability, food production sustainability, um, socioeconomic systems and sustainability. Because I think the one thing that I've gleaned from this whole situation is our systems that we have in place are so fragile and so unsustainable and this is why we're starting to see so many different systems fall apart. Okay, um, one of the things you know, I recorded this episode uh, a little while ago, probably a few weeks ago now, so more near the beginning of the lockdown. Uh, but one of the things that we're starting to see now is we're starting to see the food supply chain management is starting to show some cracks. Okay, we're starting to see. Uh, fields of vegetables um, just being left to rot. We're starting to see farmers and dairy farmers particularly dumping milk in the U.S. Um, I I believe it's starting in Canada at time of recording. We're seeing pigs and cows, unfortunately, just being slaughtered with nowhere to go. And I'm not 100% sure why this is happening at this time. And perhaps I'll look into that and potentially do a podcast on that. But Really, what it shows is is the the supply chain management and our in terms of where our food originates from and getting onto our tables is shifting rapidly, right? So we've we're, we already know that many restaurants, I mean, all restaurants have closed for the most part, aside from those doing takeout. We're starting to see that uh, consumers are shifting from you know going out to eat, getting takeout, to cooking more meals at home. And with that means that the food system is now having to divert, right? So we're not doing bigger shipments to, um, you know, warehouse distribution centers and so on. We're actually now having to divert a lot of that, uh, repackage a lot of that and get that to the, you know, the end consumer at the end of the day. So without going too far on a tangent, uh, I would like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. And uh, I had a fantastic conversation with him. We met um, at an event which was all around uh, plant-based protein and what that looks like in Canada and North America. And I just loved what he had to say uh, as part of the panel. So connected with him, invited him on the show, and we had a very, very broad discussion, not just about plant-based eating, but I think about where the food trend is going in general now a lot of you listening to this you know we are aware of the you know perhaps the benefits of more of a plant-based diet we're aware of the environmental side of things 
uh, we're aware of the trends okay so particularly if you are in the health and wellness space or the natural food space uh, i think you know we're sort of preaching to the choir a little bit but what is interesting is you know in my conversation with uh, sylvain we we really touch on a number of key areas uh, first of all, before I get into those areas, I think I should just uh, do my due diligence here and uh, do a proper introduction. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Charlebois is, uh, he is known as the food professor. Uh, he is a very well-established um, and esteemed uh, scientist uh, working at Dalhousie University, a Canadian researcher in food distribution and policy. Uh, he also has a background in business and economics and has actually won many awards for his research and publications. Uh, he, some of you might know him actually from newspapers. So uh, he is a contributor for La Presse, for the Globe and Mail, and writes for the Canadian Grocer magazine. And I feel like he's really got his finger on the pulse with the research that him and his team are doing. Uh, so some of the areas and things that we touch on in this particular podcast include affordability and accessibility to plant-based foods. Right? So we talk about things like the cost of plant-based foods, the innovation around plant-based foods, where is the plant-based movement heading, and who is spearheading that movement. Uh, we talk about the environmental side of things and the sustainability side of things. And I think you'd be interested to find out that the sustainability and environmental question really, um, I don't want to say falls apart, but we have to look at it in the context of your local environment, right? So we talk about things like almonds, for example, and there's some pretty compelling research out there to show that uh, almonds are not necessarily the most sustainable um, food, you know, in terms of almond milk and so forth, uh, because, you know, in Canada, we don't grow almonds and there's a lot of processing, there's a lot of transportation. So I think it's interesting to really open up the discussion around the plant-based movement. However, thing that we, one big thing that I gleaned from my discussion is how things have changed so much from the days of putting a food guide out there and hoping and praying that people just adopt that food guide and they just blindly follow it. That has really been flipped uh, a full 180 uh, at time of recording. And I think we're going to continue to see that because what's happening now is consumers for the first time are actually dictating what they would like to see. And I think that's a very, very empowering place. Uh, we're starting to, you know, the, the sort of catchphrase that many of you have heard is voting with our dollars. And we're really starting to see that uh, come into play now. So whether you are a natural food manufacturer or product developer or someone who's looking to maybe include or adopt a slightly more plant-based um, diet, you know, I think you're going to get a lot of valuable information uh, from today's podcast. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it from my side. Um, I had a great discussion. I think you're going to really enjoy this one and would love to know your thoughts, uh, comments and so forth. Um, you can shoot us an email, support at holistichealthmasterclass.com. Um, you can, of course, join our Facebook community. So I'll put a link in there as well. Uh, we're probably hitting around 320, 330 people. So yeah, I would love to see you in that community and get to know you a little bit better. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing, reviewing, sharing this with your friends, family, community. And uh, without further delay, here is Dr. Sylvain Chalabois.
Hi, Sylvain. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, coming on today. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, um, you know, you and I met recently a few weeks ago at a Canadian club event, which was all about plant-based protein. And, um, you know, when I went and looked into you and looked at what you do, um, you know, your biography is very, very impressive. You are an op-ed contributor to La Presse in Montreal, The Globe and Mail in Toronto. Um, you are the author of Canada's Food Price Reports and also a very well-esteemed professor. Um, so you, former dean of faculty of management as well as faculty of agriculture. So without laboring over your entire bio, because I think we'll be here for a while, how would you, how would you describe to people what you do and what are the key areas of research that you are involved in? Yeah, about about 15 years ago, someone who couldn't pronounce my name uh, called me the food professor, and uh, and at the time, of course, it was uh, used as a, a tagline. Uh, uh, basically, because the person couldn't, uh, the MC uh, who was introducing me as as the keynote couldn't pronounce my name. But as my career matured, uh, or uh, became uh, more uh, prominent, I guess. Uh, people start to really feel that I, that I that I am a food professor because I look at both ends of the food continuum. I look at farming. I look at even inputs to farming. I look at processing, distribution, retail, and and, and consumption as well. And to understand food trends uh, or the future of food, I think you have to really consider all components of the industry. Uh, you don't have much of a choice. And so that's why over my career, I've always been interested in, in everything, really. Um, some academics will focus on consumption. Some academics will look at distribution, logistics, supply chains, farming. But I, I, I'm very interested in the future of food, which means that I have to look at all components at once. And, and that's why our lab and the work we do has attracted so much, uh, so much attention because uh, whenever there's a crisis or uh, a disrupting force, like, for example, COVID right now, uh, people are always wondering what's, what's going to happen uh, to food systems. And it's hard to isolate one component you have to look at the entire picture mm -hmm. and i think it's very important because you know as we see in many different areas so outside of food even is people oftentimes will cherry pick over data or they will focus on one specific thing and then use that to, to sort of drive their point home or reinforce their own uh, perhaps biases or, or narrative so i think it is very important to look at all of these and um I'm just trying to think of, of where to start with our conversation today. And, and obviously the focal point is going to be uh, revolving around plant-based foods and access to plant-based foods. But I think it's important for us to maybe just get a couple of definitions um, out of the way so that everyone is clear on what we're talking about. And the first thing that I would love for you to sort of differentiate between is what is the difference between food security and um, food sovereignty? Mm. Uh, it's a good question. It comes up a lot. Um, well, so food security is a matter 
looks at access to food in general. So whether a population uh, has enough uh, food or and can afford food and if the food is actually safe. So food safety, affordability and access are, are the three main components. Food sovereignty adds an extra layer to all that, um, which is uh, certainly uh, related to where the food is coming from. And uh, for a market to become food sovereign, you have to uh, make sure that the market itself can produce the food it needs. So for example, supply management in Canada, which governs uh, a few commodity groups like dairy, for example, uh, poultry, and eggs, uh, the underlying uh, principle of supply management is, is food sovereignty. You basically produce what you need for the domestic market. And so, of course, that brings uh, people to debate about the importance of food sovereignty. Our focus has always been around food security because you have to, uh, in Canada in particular, because Canada is an open economy where we're only 37 million people in a Nordic um, economy. So you can't really produce food as efficiently as say the US, Brazil mm -hmm. or other places. So uh, I, I actually do consider Canada in general to be a food secure uh, economy, but when it comes to food sovereignty, it depends what commodity you're looking at. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because, you know, from my understanding anyway, and perhaps you can correct me, Canada as a general, um, you know, market, uh, we have 10% food sovereignty. In other words, most of our food is actually imported from other countries. Now, obviously, if you looked at something like dairy, for example, we're probably a lot, we have a lot more sovereignty because we produce a lot of dairy. But um, perhaps in other crops, for example, that don't grow very well in Canada, we're relying a lot more heavily on imports. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, no, I mean, basically, it's uh, these, these discussions have always been a little bit polarizing mm -hmm. over the last 20 years or so. Um, the the plant-based um, rhetoric uh, is another is another uh, point of of tension, I think, because we do produce a lot of pulses, but we never actually uh, given them a whole lot of attention mm. as a country. Uh, and so I, I, I actually did argue when I was at the Canadian Club that Beyond Meat should have been should have been Canadian uh, if if the emphasis was going to be on food sovereignty. I actually do think that uh, that Miami could have been Canadian because we do produce a whole like a lot of pulse uh, in Canada, but most of it is exported right now. But there is a shift in in protein demand in the Western world, not not as big as some people would suggest, but it is it is happening for a variety of reasons. And as the market matures, I actually do think that that uh, that vegetable proteins will become more affordable. Uh, which is, I think, desirable, of course. But um, I actually do think that uh, that uh, these two notions, food security and food, food um, sovereignty, are always in the middle, at the core of many debates that we have in agriculture and agri-food, uh, at least over the last generation or so.
Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. And again, you know, you can kind of like zoom in on different areas within that discussion and prop up whatever side of the aisle you find yourself on. But let's come back to um, food security. And I think, um, you know, food security, as you said, is basically uh, access to food, right? Whether it's affordable food, whether it's safe food, um, but generally we could say access to food. And let's shift our focus now on plant-based food. So, you know, the plant-based movement has really taken off over the last few years in, in a very big way. Um, you know, I'll just sort of do a bit of a preamble and then let you go for it. But my understanding is that it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's going to become a lot more prominent and it's being driven primarily by the younger demographic. So um, people maybe under 35. But how would you define, you know, what is a plant-based product? I mean, obviously uh, from a, a thousand foot overview, it's a plant that grows in the ground, but we could say that uh, Wonder Bread or Coca-Cola are plant-based products. So that's obviously not what's driving the market. So maybe we can sort of flesh that out a little bit. Um, what is a plant-based food product? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot, I mean, by definition, I would say that most products are plant-based. Right. Really. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with how protein is, is perceived in the marketplace. Uh, my, my starting point for everything is always the consumer. Uh, how is the consumer seeing the market? And, and, and you work your way back. Uh, for decades, it's been the opposite. It's it's about what we grow, and and then consumers will figure it out. It's the build that they will come sort of mentality that has completely shifted, and uh, things are in reverse now. Consumers are dictating the rules uh, of engagement in the marketplace. So my starting point is the consumer. How the consumer is uh, considering. Um, the protein in general. And I think it has a lot to do with alternatives. So the basis in Canada, and I'm sticking to Canada here, it's the trifecta of meat, uh, poultry, uh, pork, and, uh, and, and beef. And I, and I would say that by definition, proteins are based, or the way you define proteins, it's based on that. It's either animal or vegetable. Uh, one or the other, and both actually can provide benefits uh, in many different ways. So that's, to me, that's kind of how it's 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 seen. So it's it's for now, I would I would really focus on 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 what goes on at the meat counter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, um, there's a lot more awareness around factory farming, um, animal welfare, and so forth. And I feel like this is a large reason and a large um, part of what's driving the the push for more plant-based foods. Um, but, you know, just coming back to something you said earlier, which which made me think a little bit, you know, historically, I think the food guide is is what sort of dictated, I mean, it still dictates policy, but the food guide is what people really look to. And I feel like now people are maybe not looking as much to the food guide and we're relying on other sources. So, um, I mean, is that a fair thing to say? And and why do you think that's happening? Um, I think the food guide was really the uh, exclamation mark on, uh, on a movement that, that was already happening. 
um, I think. Um, I, I do believe that there was always um, a, a market or a group of consumers that didn't really have a voice. Um, so they either used the food guide to express their views on what should be happening with proteins, but uh, you, you also have uh, many, many different interest groups that, um, that have shown or have, has been, have been trying to influence the marketplace the last little while, whether it's, it's related to animal welfare or the environment, those are the two big ones. I would say that those uh, those two factors um, have driven this shift uh, and this uh, consciousness that we all have about proteins, and uh, and so some people uh, either decide not to listen, uh, not to they just carry on with what they do, or uh, they'll basically just. Uh, uh, acknowledge that they there are habits that should be changed and and then of course whether it's the environment or animal welfare they actually do change habits and they, they, they do and they do reduce the amount of of meat they consume overall i mean for 2020 we we are expecting meat prices to go up again it's actually already happening uh, and that's despite covid uh i would say that uh Price is actually going to be a big deal. Uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, won't be able to afford to continue to buy meat products, especially in light of the fact that many Canadians will lose their jobs. And so they need to have access to cheap protein some way. And, uh, and that's where I see lots of potential uh, in vegetable proteins. Uh, it, it, when I say... The when I talk about the democratization of proteins, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, some proteins, some animal proteins are out of reach for economically for, for many consumers. If you can actually provide a cheap alternative uh, to, uh, to consumers uh, so they can have access to a, an affordable source of protein, that's, that's great. Um, what I've been concerned about over the last little while is, is our price points for specific products, brands that we all know now, like Beyond Meat and Possible Foods and, and Light Life. All of these brands are, their price points are, in my mind, unsustainable. Um, it, is, it is about providing cheap protein and it, it does cost us to produce these products and the carbon footprint for these products um, are, are, are much lower. And, and so it needs to be reflected in the marketplace. And right now it isn't. But I do expect things to change uh, over the next little while. Uh, you'll see probably, well, you're already seeing prices dropping now uh, at retail. And I suspect that that momentum will continue. And that could actually raise... Uh, demand for vegetable protein, which is why, again, if the case is strong at retail, um, it's hard to deny it, that power. It's very hard to overlook that. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, consumers are voting with their dollars, you know, and regardless of what, whether it's farmers or policymakers or food manufacturers want to do, um, if they're not catering to the market, it doesn't, well, they're just going to fall short, right? So I think what I'm hearing from you is that we, 
there there is a shift um, from the more conscious perspective, but there's also a shift in terms of the economic side of things as well. And manufacturers are simply going to have to step up to the plate, which um, it seems like they're doing that. But let me ask you a couple of things. Um, do, do you think that, you know, are, are we talking about pushing for everyone to go vegetarian or are we talking about people just wanting to eat less meat and therefore we're going to need to fill the protein gap with plant-based proteins. I mean, are we looking at that or everyone going vegetarian? I don't think it's, well, vegetarianism is, uh, is, is a, uh, is a choice a dietary choice. I, I'm not entirely convinced this is about either or, uh, yeah, yeah. It's more about a, it, this and that sort of debate. It's, uh, it's about, uh, including other products that uh, that were shunned for many many years by many generations, really. Yeah. Uh, the younger generations, the millennials and the generation Zs, are really looking at uh, at uh, protein plurality. Basically, it, mm. proteins can be can come from an animal, but it can also come from a plant. Uh, and and I think that's really what didn't exist before. Um, now, if you, if you want to talk about veganism and vegetarianism, or specific, specifically veganism, veganism is a huge commitment. Um, and, um, and I I hope and I think that there's more respect towards vegans and veganism than, say, just a year ago. It's just because, well, I think it, they're not they're 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 much more socially normalized than they were before before. You had to explain what a vegan was. Not anymore, really. People are aware that they are around. There are about half a million vegans in the country, Canada, and uh, they. It's. It may not be a lifestyle that everyone is re- is willing to follow, but at the same time, I would argue that um, it's. It is a group that is being listened to and respected way more than before. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree. And I mean, I sort of you know like to. I guess, look at this down the middle of the road where, you know, from an environmental standpoint, um, I totally get the ethical argument, you know, which I I don't even want to get into today. Um, But from an environmental standpoint, you know, eating less meat um, and shifting to consuming more plants, I think that the general consensus is that's the direction that we need to go. Um, Now, the other thing that then comes into question is, as people shift away or reduce their meat consumption, do we have the capacity to provide these plant-based foods? So one from an agricultural and perhaps more from a food processing and manufacturing standpoint. And then the second one would be, do we have that from the the, the cost perspective, right? So can people actually afford these products because a lot of the a lot of these um, you know plant-based products now are also out of reach for people you know they're very very expensive I mean I think about um, dairy alternatives for example so not so much your your oat milks and stuff like that but your cheeses for example are crazy expensive and most people I don't think can afford that I, I agree uh, again uh, what I'm noticing uh, alter- some alternatives are actually getting cheaper uh oat milk is actually one one example uh oat milk is actually becoming more affordable 
And, and the price actually in most provinces is, is, is becoming competitive. And I, I do see uh, that some alternatives will become, uh, will become more affordable as, as we move forward. And production, the, the, the one thing that I've actually noticed, which is interesting, is when you talk to executives in, in, uh, of, of these companies providing an alternative, a source of protein, is that you can feel that there's a reluctancy to make these products become a commodity in the marketplace. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Like I met, I met a couple of uh, of executives uh, of companies that actually are producing oat milk, which are actually I think is probably the most promising of alternatives for milk in particular. Uh, you can feel that there's some discomfort re- regarding how to commoditize the product itself. What? Why and, is that? Because they want to charge a premium. But, but <laughs> okay, fair enough. My margins are quite high, and I can understand the economics of 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 that. But I actually do see um, the marketplace change over time, and there will be more thirst, uh, no pun, for these types of products. And as as soon as you see mega enterprises like Starbucks and uh and and mcdonald's starting to endorse these alternatives um there's no holding back they're gonna have to ramp up production and and that and these products will become commodities regardless if if these executives are liking it or not i mean they're gonna have to and oats in particular the reason why i really like uh, the case for oat is that we produce oat in canada Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's one of the most sustainable uh, grains we have in Canada. So there's, there's, there's a lot of promise there. And, um, and so I know that there's, there is this legacy of keeping these products as premium products, but I don't think it's going to last. Okay. I think that's good to know as well, because, you know, there is, you know, in my space anyway, as, as a nutritionist, you know, one of the things I do, um, a lot of people will say, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive to eat healthy, right? Um, it's expensive to go plant-based, et cetera. And, you know, I think it's, um, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but as demand grows, the price will naturally come down because you're not relying then on, you know, as a company making money by having high profit margins, you're, you, can, you can shrink your profit margins and cater to more people, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I, I would say so. And, and so there's, there needs to be this recognition by alternative providers that, uh, that, that there is a future and it's not just about providing a, another choice, but it's more about um, uh, really taking a market share uh, away, away from dairy. And, and of course, uh, I think everyone knows that fluid milk uh, demand per capita in Canada is shrinking for a variety of reasons, whether it's immigration or the fact that people are getting older. But, mm. uh, but oat, oat milk, I actually do think, I mean, the biggest challenge for, for the alternatives is taste and price. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's be honest here. Not all, not all alternatives actually do taste good. But old milk, again, going back to old milk, it behaves very well uh, in a coffee shop. And, uh, and that's why I think that because of that vehicle, it could actually become much more 
predominant uh, than, say, soya or almond or other alternatives. Uh, they've been around for a long time, but they haven't really caught um, much attention other than uh, from uh, vegans. And, but, but, but the vegan market is, is quite restricted. Uh, what, what I think is going to happen is that it's like Beyond Meat. They saw the entire market as an opportunity, not just vegans. And mm -hmm. I think dairy, it's going to be the same thing. Vegan cheese, vegan cheese two years ago was not edible. I mean, it was just disgusting. But now, because of innovation, because there are more competitors in the marketplace, vegan some some of those vegan cheese are actually quite good. Very good, yeah. Very, but also very pricey, right? You know, I mean, you're, right. you're you're paying ten, twelve dollars for a little tub of vegan cheese or some slices, and you know, I mean, family of four, you're gonna burn through that in a couple of meals. Um, that, that's right. So that's yeah. why you. you but I, again, as the market matures, I actually do see that uh, changing. Yeah. Now, do do you feel that? Um, you know, because you, we're obviously talking about dairy, but I think we could also expand that into other um, sectors as well. Do you feel, you know, obviously if you're a dairy farmer now and you're watching the demand for dairy go down, you're obviously sweating. You know, you're sort of going, well, what am I going to do? Do you feel that farmers are now starting to go, like, I have to change tack. I have to think about what I'm going to do differently to cater to the market. Do you think that's happening across um, the farming sector? I, I think we're at a point uh, where farmers are starting to listen. Uh, mm. Whether or not behaviors are changing or the way that farmers are looking at the market is changing, I'm not sure. But I do recognize uh, that farmers are, are starting to listen. I mean, social media, in my mind, has changed everything. I mean, it, it just it gave a voice to consumers. And I actually raised that point uh, at the Canadian Club. I mean, it's it's hard to deny or, or to overlook that power. I mean, consumers really, um, they, they have a lot of power. Right now with COVID, the media are calling me, asking me whether or not retailers are taking advantage of consumers charging more, uh, trying to gouge uh, consumers with higher prices. And my response is very simple. With social media being the best police, the most effective police in the history of, human, of the human race, I mean, how can you possibly uh, get away with it now? I mean, you can, with one picture, you can, you can get your brand into tr to some trouble. I mean, so they're not going to abuse. Uh, they're not going to be very, very careful. And so... And so farmers are starting to recognize that power, I think. Whether or not they know what to do with it is the big question. Well, I think, I think we're moving towards that now. You know, we're in this very, in a bit of a gray zone where I think some farmers and some producers as well are, they've recognized it, they've recognized the shift. I mean, we're seeing uh, dairy companies in the U.S. now that have really shifted over to more plant-based milks. Um, they're, they're because they recognize that if they keep on just selling dairy, they're not gonna, you know, they're gonna go go bankrupt or they're gonna close doors. So, um, you know, I think that that's what's coming up, and and I want to talk a little bit about sustainability in just a second. But 
the other thing that's um, that I wonder now as well is, you know, from an environmental standpoint, you know, we've spoken about oat milk and the fact that oats grow very well in Canada. So that particular product is very, very sustainable in that sense. But you know, when you look at something like almond milk, for example, people are raising a lot of questions because almond milk, well, first of all, almonds don't really grow here in Canada. And second, they require a ton of water to to um, actually grow them, right? So the question then becomes, um, are we able to, from an environmental standpoint, is this sustainable and can we actually produce enough to cater to the to, to a plant-based way of, of eating? Oh, I, 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 I think so. Now, some alternatives, uh, their case is not as strong as, say, oat milk. Almond milk requires a lot of uh, water, as, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some studies out comparing all alternatives, and uh, so we, shouldn't, we, should, we shouldn't over-exaggerate the environmental benefits of each alternative. Some alternatives are actually not as good <laughs> as, as claimed. And do so do you have, have any examples of that for our listeners? I mean, Almond is actually one example. It was a British study uh, in in the uh, in science that actually did, did display uh, the issue. And for Canada in particular, the case is not as strong because we don't produce almond exactly in, yeah. in Canada. So we and that study didn't even include logistics to get the product here in Canada. Uh, again, going back to oat milk, the oat milk case, uh, the case for oat milk is actually quite strong just because mm-hmm. of that logistics. It, we, we don't have to carry that product uh, far in order to, uh, to uh, supply uh, demand. So it, it is quite promising. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I'll just, you know, for our listeners, reiterate that this is changing right now in front of our eyes. You know, I mean, even in the last two years, we've seen things really, really take off. So a lot of the stuff um, we've, we've known about, some of it we don't know about, and um, solutions are, are coming, you know, as we, as we look into this more. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to ask you, and um, I just want to get to my notes here. Um, what what do you feel, you know, since you study food trends and specific to the plant-based, um, you know, way, plant-based foods, what do you feel are the big trends that we're going to see in the next year or two or maybe five years? What do you think is going to become front and center? Um, so from a food perspective, so the plant-based uh, phenomena is not, uh, is not to be uh, overlooked. I think it's going to be an important one. The way that the entire industry will organize itself is going to be key. Um, there, there is a trend towards, uh, towards uh, cooking. I mean, in light of what's happening right now, there's this huge tsunami affecting food retail. Many restaurants are closed now. And they're going to be closed for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because humans are creatures of habits, typically when an ice storm hits or a snowstorm or a hurricane, or it, I mean, these events are disruptive for uh, a few days, a week, perhaps two weeks. But this, this uh, virus will affect the entire globe for months and forcing people to uh, create different habits around food. And I think at the center of it all is going to be home cooking. So actually, I do think that uh, that food service will, uh, will um, the sector itself will 
consolidate or even shrink and and food retailing will actually gain uh, as a result and but at the same time it doesn't necessarily mean that people won't won't stop looking for convenience uh, so the restaurant phenomena or that blurring line between service and retail is honestly there's not going to be a line anymore it's going to be retailers supplying I do see grocery stores becoming restaurants as well. I mean, a lot of them will become restaurants just to basically provide uh, a different uh, a different product. The other issue that I see coming as well, in light of this uh, of this disruptive virus, is is e-commerce. Uh, we just mm. ran a survey last week. Nine percent of Canadians um, who have never bought food online are now buying food online because they see grocery stores as a threat to their own health. Wow. And, so, and you're, you're seeing it now in real time at plexiglass. I mean, the, the store experience is being redefined as we speak. And a lot of people are just going to stay home because they either want to, uh, to protect themselves or they have to, because they're confined to their homes. And so that's going to create a new channel and we're talking billions and billions of dollars of sales that could actually be transferred from one industry to another. And so, um, wow. Well, but I do think I do see this as a positive thing for the entire industry because we're, I think we're going to value food more. Employees are getting raised, uh, are getting uh, salary boosts uh, because while well, we're recognizing they're not paid enough. And so there's this, there's this shift in wealth that I think is going to get people to think differently about food overall. Mm. And I would agree. I mean, you know, obviously when you talk about food security um, and access to food uh, right now, what we're seeing out there is we are seeing people, um, you know, panic buying, hoarding food. We're starting to see shortages um, in certain product lines and products. We're seeing shortages, uh, due to supply chain demands, you know, so manufacturers just not being able to keep up with demand. Um, so I think you're right, you know, I mean, thing, things are shifting, but I also, um, what's interesting is, you know, with people sort of self-isolating and staying at home more, uh, you know, you're now almost in a way being forced to cook more at home. And so for people like myself, you know, I cook all the time, right? I cook every day. We're cooking home, home cooked meals. We don't eat out yeah. all that much. But I think for a lot of people, especially those living in some of the big cities, um, they're perhaps not used to that. You know, it's, so it's, it's actually, I would say that they're terrified probably, which yeah. is why in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, two products are, are, are setting record sales, uh, peanut butter and craft dinner. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It points to uh, this reality uh, that people are looking for quick solutions and comfort as well. But mm -hmm. again, as we go through this crisis, people will start reading cookbooks and uh, will figure out how to use a a, a kitchen stove and. Uh, and and mixers and, and things like that and it, it was it was a lost art for a while and so uh, mm -hmm. we're being forced to get reacquainted with uh, with what many consider uh, consider the the art the heart of the of the home which is the kitchen. 
Yeah, and I would 100% agree. I mean, um, yeah, it's definitely a lost art and, and people are coming back to that, which I think is really good. You know, being in touch more with our food, being more conscious of where our food comes from, um, how it's made, how it's grown. And again, for a lot of people, you know, some of you listening to this, uh, I know that you are perhaps a little bit more where I am, where you are cooking, you are more aware. And some of you that are listening to this, maybe not. You know, maybe this is your time to start looking into that, uh, especially because you have the time. Um, so, well, I think, um, is there anything else you, do you want to add, Sylvain? No, no, I think we've covered a lot here. <laughs> yeah, no, and th that's great. And, you know, um, I, I guess the, the overarching message here is, um, you know, plant-based eating is not going away. In fact, it's going to become more prominent. Uh, we've got farmers, we've got industry, we've got food processors that are stepping up to the plate we're going to most likely see that the quality is going to continually get better and that the price point is going to drop uh, as consumer demand grows. So, um, yeah, I want to thank you for, for all the work that you do. Well, th well, thank you. And thank you for giving, uh, giving a voice to our work here. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're trying to, uh, to understand what's happening one day at a time. It's complicated mm -hmm. out there. And, you know, and I, I can only imagine, um, you know, the, the breadth of topics and the uh, different areas you look into. I can't imagine trying to piece all of that together and make sense of it. So, so kudos to you. Um, no wonder you've won awards and um, you've been ranked as top professor and so forth. Uh, but for, for our listeners, um, where is the best place that they can find you and tap into your work? Uh, I guess the only thing you can do is to go to our uh, lab website, which is uh, you just basically Google Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and you'll get to our website, and all of our reports are there. Okay, great. And I'll throw that in the show notes as well for um, you folks listening out there. Uh, so, Sylvain, thanks once again for coming on the show. Really had a, a, a great um, discussion with you. And, of course, we could probably spend another five or six hours diving into each of those different areas um, in a micro sense. So thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And for those of you listening out there, as always, um, if you enjoyed today's show, please uh, consider subscribing, leaving us a quick review. And of course, most importantly, sharing this with your friends, your family, and your community. So thanks for tuning in and you have a beautiful day wherever you are.